we are doing eight weeks here in the Song of Solomon. We're going to go through every verse in the book. Um, it is a, a, we kind of established kind of what is the Song of Solomon last week, and so I want to recap a little bit for those of you who couldn't be here. Song of Solomon is, very simply, um, love poems written between two lovers, more than likely Solomon and his first wife, right? And so um, this is not a book that is overtly theological in nature. It's a very practical book. It's part of the section in Scripture known as wisdom literature, um, which has a certain cadence to it, a certain rhythm to it. Um, it, is, it is almost never uh, strongly theological. Song of Solomon never mentions God once um, in the entire book. Um, there is one verse that might be about God, and scholars have argued, but that's, I think they're arguing just because it's hard to imagine a book without God in it. Um, but we've basically got a, a very romantic, uh, very sexual, very sensual book here, and, uh, and it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And it's going to be even more fun as the two uh, get married and, uh, and, and start to enjoy married life. And so uh, what we are going to do this afternoon, evening, is maybe the most important message um, of all eight weeks, right? So you guys have kind of hit the apex of this book. It's all kind of downhill from here. Um, but this, this may be the clearest, most important message um, of the whole series. I've preached this twice already today, and I got an email this afternoon that opened my eyes to some things that have, has made me kind of call an audible a little bit with, with this evening's message, and so we'll see how this goes. So Song of Solomon chapter 1, starting in verse 7. We did verse 7 last week. We're going to back it up a little. Uh, we talked about part of it. We didn't talk about another part that really flows into 8 and beyond. So verse 7, um, she is talking, Solomon's first wife. She is talking. She says, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like the one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? So what we talked about is that she is essentially saying to him, after six verses of telling Solomon how much she loves him, she says, you whom my soul loves, tell me where you are because I'm not going to chase you. And she mentions specifically a, a group of women who veil themselves and hang out by the flocks, by the shepherds, where they kind of water and feed their flocks in the middle of the day, who were essentially prostitutes. They knew where all the shepherds would be around noontime. They would show up there, make themselves available to these shepherds. And so she says, I love you. I want to be near you, but I'm not going to be like one of these women. I'm not going to be a prostitute that just throws herself at you. Even though I love you, even though I want to be with you, I've got lines in my life that I will not step over. Okay, so it, it, that's what we talked about last week. But really at a broader level and how this conversation goes, she's simply saying, Solomon, where are you? Right? Where are you? Where, what are you doing? And he responds. These are Solomon's first words in the book, verse 8. He says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats besides the shepherd's tents. Now, what he is essentially saying there is, you know where I am. Come find me. Right? He is teasing her, having fun with her, being playful with her. There is not, there's no theological piece to this. He's simply going, baby, you know where I'm at? Come get me, right? I mean, that is, that is what he's saying, okay? She goes, where are you? I want to be with you. And he goes, why don't you just follow my footsteps? You know where I'm at? Come on, girl. Okay, and so he's, he's teasing, he's playing, he's having a little fun. He goes on. He's not just a tease. He says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, right? So he goes, <laughs> 
he teases her and says, baby, you know where I'm at? And then he goes, oh, no, it's cool, baby. You're like a horse. (laughs) That's not exactly like making up for it, exactly. But he says, you, I liken you to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, so there, there was a couple things going on here. First of all, we talked about last week that most of the metaphors used in Song of Solomon are not meant to be primarily physical metaphors, right? So when he says, you are like a mare, you're like a female horse, he's not saying you look like a horse, okay? That, and this is going to be true because he talks about this a lot of times, a lot of different metaphors that have to do with animals or plants or whatever the case may be. So at, at, at the most simple level, he, he is probably saying, to her, um, you are the choicest, finest, most regal among women, right? When you think about the horses that Pharaoh would have, he would have, as king, he would have the best of the best, the nicest horses, the strongest, the most beautiful, the most regal, the most perfect horses among all the horses. And so at at one level, he is saying, and in what is a very romantic way, you just got to believe me that this is romantic, that he's saying, you are choice, you are beautiful, you are the best of the best. Now, there is a kind of a secondary interpretation that I think has a ton of merit um, that's way more interesting, and so we're going to go with that, okay? Um, there is historical evidence to suggest that an early military strategy in this time period um, was that when you had a, a chariots oncoming and, and you were facing down, you know, hundreds of Pharaoh's chariots and you had like a knife, right, um, that, that you would, instead of trying to face down those chariots, who were all led by horses, but not female horses, male horses, stallions, Okay, stallions are boy horses, mares are girl horses, all right, just to clear that up. So, so when, these, when these chariots were coming, hundreds of chariots that were led primarily by stallions, if not exclusively by stallions, one of the strategies would be to release a group of mares who were in heat, right, and have them run in front of the chariots. So, these, so the, the stallions are like, I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill. And then these mares go, hey, guys, you know, and kind of... <laughs> And, and so the stallions are like, kill, kill, whoa, hey girl, you know, and, and they get distracted. That was a legitimate um, a strat- military strategy. Now, we know from historical documents it, it didn't work because the, 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 uh, the Egyptians would just kill the mares and then the stallions were like, ah, oh, dead, right? All right, let's go. So, so it didn't really work, but it was a military strategy. So what Solomon might be saying is, you are like a mare that has been run in front of uh, Pharaoh's chariots. This isn't sounding any better, I know, but let me get there, okay? Just let me get there. Uh, Essentially, he is saying, you drive me to distraction, right? You are so beautiful that when I see you, I lose my train of thought. I'm totally distracted as to what I've been doing that day. When you walk through town, all the men get distracted. The blacksmith, they're like, whoa, right on their arm, you know, you just, you drive men to distraction. You're so beautiful. You're so regal. You're so perfect. You are distractingly beautiful. That's what he's saying. Now, he could have just said, you are distractingly beautiful and saved himself all the, oh, I look like a horse, right? No, that that whole thing that I'm sure went down. Um, but that's, that's what he's saying. I think that's pretty cool, okay? He goes on. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Now, we could build a whole sermon on this passage about um, outward appearance and, and modesty and clothing and jewelry and all these things and how she is adorning herself. And, and we, could, we could literally build a whole thing on that and, and take some significant time. But, but we, we gotta get to the end of this passage because that's where the good part is. So I, I, I would just say this. 
he is praising her very specifically telling her that, that the jewelry she has chosen, the, the clothes, the outward adornment that she has, um, is accentuating her beauty, not that he is obsessed with it and it's, it's something that he's encouraging her to do to cover up parts of her, or that, that she is being overly minimalistic and going, well, he should just love me for who I am, I'm not gonna look pretty, right? But he's going, thank you for being aware, thank you for taking the time to put on this jewelry, thank you um, for choosing jewelry that accentuates your beauty, it's not overwhelming, it's not too much, it's not, but it, it's just the right amount. So we praise her very specifically for, for how she's adorning herself. And then her friends in verse 11, who are always there, um, they say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So they're planning craft night, right? So Solomon likes the jewelry, let's make more jewelry. So they're, they're doing that, it's good friends, okay? Now, verses 12 through 14 are, are, are really key for us to understand. And they're, they're key for us to understand because what we see in 12 through 14 kind of catapults us into 15 through 2.6 and then ends on 2.7. So we, we've got to get this. In verse 12, she says, she kind of sets the tone, says, gives a setting, says, while the king was on his couch, right? So we've got something going on in the castle where the king, Solomon, is lounging on a couch, right? This is setting. She says, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Okay, nard, unfortunate word that it's in the Bible, um, but it's there. And so what, what that was, was essentially just perfume. There's a certain kind of perfume um, that she's giving off. She's close enough to Solomon that he is smelling her perfume. She says, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. So, um, a sachet would have been um, a kind of a pouch, right, um, of perfume that women would wear around a necklace and it would it'd be right here at the uh, top of their chest and they would sleep with it oftentimes. And so uh, over the course of the night, they, their body would begin to smell like this perfume. They'd take it off in the morning and then they would smell like um, whatever herbs or flowers or whatever they had put in there to, to smell good the rest of the day. And so she is saying to him, you are like the sachet of myrrh that, that, that rests between my breasts. So at the very least, she is saying, you are near to me. We, we have intimacy. There is closeness, right? Um, that there is not in 12 through 14. This is really important to get. There's not in 12 through 14 a hint of sexuality, right? They're not having sex on the couch. This is important to know because of where it goes from here, all right? So she is saying, you are like a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Now, what this probably means is that they were reclining on the couch. They are maybe weeks away from getting married. They're engaged at this time. They're reclining on the couch, and perhaps he is resting his head on her chest. Okay, so this is, this is an intimate moment. This is an important moment for them um, physically. It's not sexual, but it's physical and, and intimate, okay? So this, this, is, this is one of those places, and I have to just mock the church fathers, this is one of those places where church fathers have, um, have done really stupid things with verses. And so Cyril of Alexandria said that this doesn't mean that his head was laying between her breasts on her chest, but that the breasts are the Old and New Testament um, representative here, and that Jesus is the sachet of myrrh that spans the Old and New Testament. I shouldn't use this, actually. Um, <laughs> I use my hands. We just got to get over it, okay? So um, 
So Cyril of Alexandria says this is Old New Testament and Jesus is the statue of myrrh that spans the distance between the Old and New Testament. And so <laughs> essentially he's saying that Jesus is our theological cleavage and that, that's, that's problematic to me. That's just weird, okay? And so um, a, another church father said that the breasts represent the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant and that the sachet is the Shekinah glory in the middle. That takes some significant creativity and sexual repression in order to come up with some of that stuff. Um, and and it's just, it just leads us down a weird path, okay? And so what, what I want to do is just read this really plainly and go, my lover is near me. He is resting on my chest. This is a moment they're lounging together weeks before their wedding. And then we just move on and I put my hands behind my back the rest of the day. (laughs) Verse 14, she says, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. So En Gedi is this idyllic place um, on the west bank of the Red Sea where um, this was kind of an oasis, this this lush environment um, that is particularly beautiful because it's surrounded by desert wilderness. And so she is envisioning, um, she's, she's talking about him saying he smells so good. He, he is like be, being in his arms, essentially being in his arms is like being in this oasis. It's, it's a, a place away from the castle, away from the stress, away from the anxiety that city life brings. He is to me um, this, this getaway place. Now, this is important to understand that these three verses were, were an actual moment that she's describing while they lounge on the couch have, have a significant moment together. They were intimate without being sexual. There is not in that passage a hint of sexuality. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm really making a point of that because it does get sexual later. Okay. Verse 15, he responds saying, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She said, behold, you are, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful, right? They're just getting annoying at this point. You're beautiful. No, you're beautiful. Like, shut up. You're both beautiful. <laughs> We get it, okay? And so um, we, we've got this expression of love. They're lounging together. And then at the end of 16, we see, a, we see a, a, a weird thing happen where she goes, our couch is green. <laughs> okay, that, this, is, this is weird. This is a shift in what's going on. So there, there's been some discussion about what's happening here and what the rest of this passage is about. And, and here's what I think. Here's my best guess. I think that these two lovers were lounging on a couch together, enjoying time with one another, and then as they were laying there, her brain started kind of drifting off, and she has a fantasy, right? We see throughout Song of Solomon that there are moments where her thoughts kind of telescope into the future. We see later on in chapter four where she has a dream, a vision of what's happening, and it's kind of a, a dream that is fearful. And, uh, and so I think what's happening here, my best guess, and I think it's consistent with what comes before, I think it's consistent with the evidence in the middle and what comes after. I think what happens is that she begins to fantasize about their future together. Okay? And so what, what happens from here on out as we see this, this kind of rapid change of scenery as they are in the castle on a couch, then all of a sudden she goes, our couch is green, right? This is not her just looking down and going, hey, Solomon, we're on a green couch, right? That would just be random, all right? We know, I, I think that this is a, a shift of setting, and, and there's evidence throughout the rest of the passage. She goes, our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. Okay, and so she is envisioning them outside, um, 
looking up into the sky and having um, trees over them. She's not in the middle of this love poem going, hey, we're on a green couch and this was a nice choice of wood on your ceiling, right? That, that she, her, her mind is beginning to drift. She's having a fantasy of being outside. Perhaps she's envisioning En Gedi itself as she has just mentioned that. Right? And so she is talking about um, seeing pine and cedar and being on grass, and she's envisioning a moment in their future. Okay? And she says a couple things here that I think are really interesting um, and reveal a lot about her, and, and I hope we can learn um, something together on this. As she says, in her fantasy, she tells him, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, at first blush, you might think she's saying, um, I am beautiful like a rose, I'm like a lily, and, and she's kind of full of herself. What she's actually saying is, I'm really average, okay? Um, there is some translation issue with that rose of Sharon because um, most scholars would, would agree that roses didn't come to this, this area until after the Old Testament period. So the idea here is simply that she, she's a flower among flowers. She is a lily among the valleys. In this, in this region, there would be full valleys with, with thousands and thousands of lilies. And so what she's saying is, I, I am just another girl it looks like all the other girls. I'm just average. I'm just, I'm just one, of a, a, one of many girls, okay? And she says this to her lover in her fantasy, right? And then in her fantasy, he responds, right? This is, this is kind of dream within it. This is inception going, kind of going on here. So um, he says, no, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. So he goes, no, you're not a lily among lilies. You're not a rose among roses. You are a lily amongst weeds. You are a lily amongst brambles. You stick out. You're unique. You're beautiful. If I was walking through um, a, a, a valley full of weeds and there was one lone lily, okay, I, I would notice that. I, I, would, I would find it beautiful. I would choose that amongst all, all of the weeds, all of the brambles. And so she is expressing um, a desire, I think, for him to tell her what he thinks. Now, I, I really don't want to express this as if this, this revealed any weakness in her. I think this is a totally legitimate expression of her desire to be told by the man she loves what he thinks of her. And we see him responding the right way. She throws out this, oh, I'm just a lily amongst lilies. I'm a rose amongst roses. And he goes, no, no, no. No, you are, you are a lily amongst weeds. You, you are unique and you are beautiful in, in a world that is ugly. You are, you are so great. And so he responds exactly the way she would want him to respond in her dream, in her fantasy. He responds right, okay? This is a good fantasy, right? This may not be reality, but it's, it's in her fantasy he responds well. What does he do? He compliments her. He tells her how beautiful she is. Tells her how unique she is. Tell her that she stands out among women. That he gives her exclusive attention, particular attention, and thinks she is particularly beautiful. I, I think that there is something really important for us guys to learn from this interaction. That, that she is being really honest about, I, I want you to tell me what, what you think of me. I want you to tell me you're beautiful. And it's not done, I don't think, in, a, in an insecure sense of she's baiting him for compliments. But she's just going, listen, what, what do you think? What, tell me that you love me. Tell me that I'm beautiful. Tell me that I'm the only girl for you. Husbands, please don't stop dating your wives. 
Don't, don't stop trying to woo your wife now that you're married to her. These, all these nice things that you told her when you were dating, continue to tell them to her. Continue to tell her, this is why I love you and this is what's unique about you and this is why I chose you and this is why I chased you and this is why I spent all that money on you and this is why I, I look like a fool for you and this is why. Tell her. Remind her that you love her today the way you loved her then. We, we see a great example in Solomon here of a guy who, who knows what to say to his wife, right? She responds saying, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In other words, she reciprocates and saying, you are unique in that if you're walking through a forest with pine and cedar and all this, and all of a sudden there was an apple tree, that'd be weird, right? And so she goes, you are unique as well. You are handsome among men. She says, with great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. This is, this is great. I, I, I just, I love the honesty here. I, I love that we get to peek into her fantasy, that she wrote this down for Solomon and said, hey, this is what I'm dreaming. This is what I'm hoping. This is what I'm fantasizing about for our future, right? And she tells him, listen, I, I look forward, and she kind of carries that apple tree metaphor into these next verses saying, I, I look forward to sitting in your shade, being protected by you, feeling secure around you, right? That, that she, when she says, you take me into the banqueting house, this literally is translated house of wine. This is a place of joy, a place of celebration. She goes, I look forward to celebrating with you. I look forward to times of joy with you. I look, time, look forward to times of happiness with you. Then she says, and your banner over me is love. The only other time that this is, this is spoken of is, I believe, in Exodus, in Exodus, this, this idea of banner over was one, it was kind of a military idea. And, and, I, and I think, and, and ladies, give me grace on this. Let me explain what, I'm gonna, what, what I mean by this. But I, but I think he's, he's taking ownership of her in, in the best possible sense, right? Um, that he's saying, I, I will protect you. I will be over you. And she is in her fantasy kind of projecting this out going, he is going to protect me. He is going to provide for me. He is going to provide rest for me, shade for me. The gentleman, that, that her, her desire is that Solomon would be a place, a, a respite for her, that there is all these stress and anxiety from the world, and that as, as that builds up and builds up, that when she gets around Solomon, she expects to find rest. She expects for him to be an oasis. She says that we'll, we'll celebrate together. You, your banner will be over me in that. You will, you will protect me. You, you will have a sense of responsibility. Take a sense of responsibility for my well-being, for my comfort, for my protection. That she longs for these things. And I think her longings are absolutely biblically justified. That the role of the husband in marriage is that of protector and provider that we should be a place of rest and solace, that, that our wives shouldn't be stressed out when they're around us, but really feel protected and cared for and provided for. And so she is, she is articulating that desire, and, and I think Solomon provides exactly what he's supposed to provide. Now, verses five and six, 
this moment kind of ramps up a little bit. And, and I warned you uh, a couple of weeks back that there was going to be sections of uh, Song of Solomon that were PG-13, and last week was weak, right? That was kind of G-ish. And, and, uh, and so we're, gonna, we're not quite to the PG-13, but we're PG here in verses 5 and 6. She says, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. There is not a commentary that I read of, of the commentaries that actually were brave enough to, to deal with this passage. There was not a single one that disagreed that when she says, sustain me with raisins and feed me apples, that she is literally saying, I am physically tired from all the lovemaking, and I need you to give me calories to keep me going. How awesome of a fantasy is this? <laughs> Do you not think that Solomon heard, read those words and went, oh, yes. <laughs> now, she may be optimistic uh, about their future together, and, and as she is picturing this all day, all night kind of, okay, we need to take a break for snacks. I, I, need, I, you know, I need to be sustained here, right? This, 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 she may be a little naive too, um, but, but, there is, but there is a hope, there is a desire there as she fantasizes about their future together that they are going to experience some good times and a long time of good times, Okay. Then she says something that, that, I, that I just, I love, and I think we can learn a little thing from before we, before we wrap up. She says, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. That she is literally envisioning a position that she longs to be in with him, okay? Where his left hand is underneath her head, and his right hand is around her and embracing her. Maybe, maybe this is a, a, a position um, after they've had a time of sexual intimacy where she just longs for, for these moments of, of kind of aftermath of enjoying one another and, and being with one another after, after experiencing that union, right? But she is explicit with him. She goes, I, I can't wait for the day that we're laying together and your left hand is here and your right hand is here. You know what I love about this? She, she's given him tips, right? And being really honest and, and being what I think is really helpful, okay? Um, ladies, just so you know, most of the time, um, especially at the beginning, guys are just kind of groping around hoping for the best. And, 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 and a little bit of direction would be super helpful. Um, just kind of like no, yes, up, down, left, you know, like some of that stop immediately, you know, any of those kinds of things. Um, any of those kinds of directions can be super helpful, and she gives them, right? She, she gives them in this moment where she goes, I, I look forward to this. I look forward to this moment when we're laying like this in this position. That will bring me joy, okay? And so she, she expresses herself very honestly, and I would encourage um, both husbands and wives to express yourself very honestly in, in this context. But, uh, but I will say this, um, that being this honest and being this vulnerable requires a great deal of trust, right? Trust that your, your husband or your wife is not going to mock you or make fun of you or, or, or talk about you to her friends or his friends or, oh yeah, my wife likes this or my husband likes this or he doesn't like that or she's this. And he, that there, there's a significant amount of trust here because she's being really vulnerable, saying, I, I, I want you to do this. I look forward to that. She, she's putting herself out there quite a bit 
And that can only happen in, in the context of a, of a trusting, secure relationship where she knows that, that he is someone that she can be honest with and that he's not going to use it against her and he's not going run to run all over town telling his friends about her. Okay? And which transitions us really well to chapter 2, verse 7, which is where we'll end. Right at the, at the climax of this, of this story, and that might be the wrong word choice there, um, but right, uh, right really at the peak of, um, of this story, she stops and verse 7 says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, or, or swear, literally swear an oath with me. Promise me, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's saying to, to, these, um, to these friends of hers that, um, and, and then I think by extension, the reader, us, she is having this moment in verses 12 through 14 with the love of her life, this, this intimate moment, this physical moment, but not a sexual moment. There's not a hint of sexuality in, in 12 through 14. And they exchange pleasantries. They love each other. They're so beautiful. And then her mind drifts off into this fantasy of being in this idyllic place, um, experiencing her husband sexually, lounging together in this um, unbelievable moment and then just perhaps as her desires are overcoming her is able to stop in that moment and say I adjure you make an oath with me promise me O daughters of Jerusalem that you will not awaken passion too soon right and and there's a sense in which she says this three times throughout the book there's a sense in which she's almost saying it for herself that she caught herself um, and her emotions ramping up in this moment, her desires, her temptation ramping up in this moment, and she's stopping herself and going, no, it's not time yet. It's not time. And so she communicates, oh, daughters of Jerusalem, don't stir up or awaken passion too soon. So uh, all week I've been, been struggling with this, with this passage and how to preach it to a room full of adults because this makes a really easy youth group talk, right? We just talk about the dangers of premarital sex and, and I quote for you some statistics about what, you could, what could happen and you get these STDs and we could you know, just really do the scare tactic thing and I thought, no, you know what? These are adults and, and so there's a level of maturity that I, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt on and, and assume here as we talk about these things. And, and, I, and I did read a statistic that was particularly frustrating and, and, and a little scary, but um, it said that, and there was multiple, multiple studies done that basically all of them say that um, most Americans have sex before marriage, right? And the, and the range is actually quite large from barely over half to uh, the, the most I saw in one study was 95%. And I hesitate to tell you that because there is kind of a psychology of, well, everybody else is doing it, so it's not a big deal. And so I've, I've really struggled with that. I've really struggled with, with understanding that and how to talk about that and, and, and how to um, articulate that. And, and I got an email this afternoon from, from someone that I, I really appreciate them being honest enough to email me about their struggles with it and, 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 and kind of the, their experience um, dealing with the dating scene and expectations and, and all these kinds of things. And, and some of the questions that I've consistently gotten over the years is, well, the Bible doesn't actually say um, that you can't have sex before marriage, right? I mean, this is the question. Where, where does it say that you can't have sex before marriage? And so um, I, I will stand before you today and, and maybe be the only pastor to admit it doesn't say it specifically. It doesn't say it the way you want it to say it. 
There's not a thou shalt not have sex before marriage passage, right? There's not, this is not in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes, hey, by the way, don't have sex before you're married, teenagers, right? Um, there, that, that, that's not there. And so what we do see and what I'm going to show you is, is maybe a little worse, actually. So turn to Mark chapter 10. You asked for it. Maybe you didn't. Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 2. And so um, this, this, is my, this is my little, my little audible here, is I, I want to make something really, 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 really clear. And, and I feel like I was maybe too vague in the morning, and I, here's what I want to make clear. The Bible lays out a perfect plan for sexuality and relationship. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2, and we're going to see that Jesus actually takes us back to Genesis 2. But God defines his perfect plan for us whom he created, right? So, so God made us, God made sexuality, God made all this to be true. He, he made it not only um, for, to be uh, the mechanism for procreation, he made it not only to be enjoyable, right? He very easily could have just, just made it a method for procreation, not dissimilar from food or, or exercise, right, that, that may or may not be particularly enjoyable. He could have, but he didn't. He added to that joy and satisfaction. He added to that another step, a, a divine moment, a supernatural moment that we're going to see Jesus outline in Mark chapter 10. So if you're looking at the heading, it says teaching about divorce. Here's what I want you to do. Put that out of your head for a second because what, what he is building on is what we want to talk about. So 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 2 of Mark. It says, And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, from the beginning of creation, Jesus says. We know from John chapter 1 that all things that were created were created through Jesus, right? So when Jesus says from the beginning of creation, it's not because he's read Genesis, it's because he is Genesis, because he created all things. He created male and female. He created sexuality. He created its purpose. He created how it is to be done. He made it up. So he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, and now he's quoting from Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave to his wife. This is the concept of covenant. He shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus adds, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Let, let's, let's, let's get this. Okay? We, the rest of it doesn't make any sense if we, don't, if we don't get this. Jesus said, in creation, God invented man. God invented woman. God invented a mechanism that man and woman might become one flesh. And Jesus says, so they're no longer two, but they are one. Now, is that oneness a result of a marriage certificate uh, approved by the state of Arizona? No. 
Is that uh, oneness a, a result of a licensed pastor or priest putting his blessing over vows being said? Is that oneness a result of sexual union? Yes. That in sexual union, in intercourse, God does a supernatural thing when he puts a man and a woman together. They are no longer two. They are one. It is not a certificate that does this. It is not a pastor that does this. It is sexual union blessed by God, divinely making two into one. Got to get that. Jesus goes on. What therefore God has joined together. God has joined together. Let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Why would that be true? Jesus has built an argument here, starting in verse 2, ending in verse 10, for why the separation of oneness and then the remarriage of that oneness to another person would be considered adultery. Adultery. Adultery is sin. I, I just want to be really clear about this because I feel like I maybe was vague in the morning and I don't want to be vague. That Jesus said, listen, when I invented man and then I invented woman and I invented sexuality, I also show up in that moment in, in a way that's not weird. Um, I show up in that moment and do something divine and supernatural that takes two things and makes them into one thing. And so when those, that oneness is then separated, that thing God put together is then separated by man, there is, there is a sense in which Jesus goes, who are you to separate what I put together? You, you think you can just come together and split apart and come together and split apart and come together with, with whoever you want, however many times you want? Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians. He goes, why would you unite yourself with a prostitute? Because no matter who you're having sex with, no matter who you are joining with, you are uniting This is significant. This is so important to God. So if you're looking for a thou shalt not have sex before marriage, you're not going to find it. What you find is something even more significant where God says, I am doing something supernatural in that sexual union. And you, man, woman, are trying to tear apart what I have done and unite again and tear apart and unite again and tear apart and unite again. And you know what happens? Pain. Pain. So this is why youth pastors across America have begged teenagers not to have sex before marriage. This is why I come before you this morning and beg you, beg you to not have sex outside of marriage. We, we have done this thing in our culture. We, we have stripped away the significance of this experience. We've said it's no big deal. 
We've said everybody's doing it. We've said we can do it whatever we want. We can do it this way or that way. We can do it. It's not a big deal. And God says, who are you to say what I invented is not a big deal? I made it. I invented it. I created it to be a significant expression of your love for one another. And now you're saying it's not a big deal? I disagree. And guess what? I'm God, so I'm right. Here, here's, here's my continued struggle with this thing. I know that many of you are, are coming into this moment um, with, with a past that is full of pain. And, and that you, you hear these words and they bring, they, re, they bring regret. They may bring shame. They might bring guilt, condemnation. And, and, I, and I want you to hear this, and please hear this clearly. That shame and guilt and condemnation does not come from God. Satan brings guilt. Satan brings shame. Satan brings condemnation. The Holy Spirit brings conviction leading to mercy as a result of repentance. That voice you hear that says you're, you're tainted, you're ugly, you're broken, that's not God. That's Satan lying to you. The voice that you hear, and maybe you haven't heard it, and so hear it from me. The voice that you hear that says, there's hope, there's restoration, there's healing, there's mercy, and there's grace, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the God of redemption that looks back on the past and says, there's brokenness, there's pain, there's guilt and shame, but it doesn't have to be that way, and the past does not have to define the future. There's hope. And so I, I want you to know that, that there, there's struggle, significant struggle on my part when I, when I unpack this and, and feel like I have to come strong and feel like I have to come very clear on this because I know that there's some of you that go, it's too late for me. And, you, and, I, and I say this, listen, it's not too late for anything. God is a God of redemption. That if there is an acknowledgement of brokenness, an acknowledgement of sin and honest repentance and desire for mercy and desire for grace, desire for a new start, it will come. Now, does that mean that your past will have no effect on your future whatsoever? No. What's done is done. There will be impact. There's, there's no getting around that. Decisions we make for all of us, every decision that we make in the past affects our future. But it can be redeemed. Can be restored. There could be hope. Okay, and so I'm, as I'm thinking through this this whole message, I'm thinking, well, you know, we could we could pull out all the statistics on on premarital sex and all this stuff and really scare them. And and I just thought, you know what? Two things on that. One is, I think you know them, right? Like you may not know this the the actual statistics. You, you may not know what percentage of this, what percentage of that. You may not know the specifics of it, but you know the idea. I don't think there's anyone so deluded so, that has lied to themselves so much to think that it's a really good thing that comes with no negative side effects. I, th I think we know by, by, by just wisdom and nature and the convictions that God has put in our heart, I think we know that with um, sex outside of covenant marriage, 
that there is higher risk for pain and suffering. There's higher risk of divorce, significant higher risk of divorce, significant higher risk of dissatisfaction in marriage, dissatisfaction in sexual life, higher risk for unwanted pregnancy, higher risk for sexually transmitted disease, that there is correlation, not causation, but correlation between premarital sex and alcoholism, drug abuse, suicide, and murder. I'm saying correlation, not causation. I'm not saying that if you have sex outside of marriage, you're going to murder someone, right? We're not we're not there yet, okay? And so um, this, this, what, I, what I'm saying is that when we start to walk down this path, it opens up for us a world that we just, it just, it just multiplies. But I think we know that. And here's the other thing. I, I, I think in those moments of, of decision, I think when we face those moments of decision, whether we are going to do this or that, we're gonna say yes or no. When those moments of decision, I think the last thing on our minds is statistics, right? So when, when we have to make that choice, I don't think we're thinking, well, but I'll have elevated rates of divorce, right? I don't think that's driving us in that moment. Now, perhaps an understanding of those dangers or those risks can prevent us from making the decision that leads to the decision that leads to the temptation, right? So knowing those things maybe keeps us out of the hot tub at 2 a.m. or something like that, but, um, but in that moment where the decision is being made, I don't think we're thinking about statistics. I think, I think when the, that decision is being made in that moment, we have a choice that really is a reflection of our hearts, and, and the decision that we make is a reflection of what do I want most in that moment? What, what, what is it that I want most? Do I want this experience more than I want this life, this satisfaction, this joy, this relationship, this obedience? What, what, what is it that I want most in that moment? And we will always choose the thing that we want most. And so I, I, would, I would ask you to consider in your heart when, when, that, when that temptation comes, what is it that is welling up inside you that's driving? I hope, man, I hope that it's not simply the desire for a physical experience. I hope that we are not so shallow. I hope that we are not so weak that we are driven simply by, by some tactile need, some, some kind of physical response. I, I hope that there is something more significant to it than that. Not that a more significant reason makes it not sin anymore, but I hope that we are not such weak creatures that simply a physical desire would cause us to lay aside our convictions, would cause us to lay aside future, would cause us to lay aside pain, would cause us to lay aside the needs and hopes and dreams and good of the person we claim to love. I hope that just simple physical desire wouldn't cause us to lay aside all those things to say yes in that moment. I know that for some of us, it is physical desire. I know for some of us, it's an emotional desire. That in that moment, what you want the most is simply to be wanted by that person. I know that for some, in that moment, you give yourself to another simply because you want to be wanted. You need to be needed. And you want that person to express their desire for you. It legitimizes you. It makes you feel secure. It makes you feel beautiful. And so you give of yourself in that moment. My hope is that we would find ourselves perhaps 
perhaps never find ourselves in that moment of temptation that we would be wise enough to avoid it. But when we do, that the overwhelming desire of our heart is to glorify God, is to experience the fullest satisfaction available to us, to experience this, this expression in its greatest joy and its greatest, just, just the greatest possible way God designed it. That we would not be so shallow as to sell it short for something less than God's design. Okay. That's my hope for us. And, and here's the deal. No, nobody wants to hear this message. I mean, the only people that want to hear this message are, are, are parents whose kids are in the room, right? Like, they're like, yeah, this is my favorite sermon ever, right? Um, <laughs> but, but pretty much everybody else is like, oh, I don't want to hear this. I just want to do my thing. I just, don't, don't lay this on me. Don't, I, I just, everyone, all my friends, all, everybody I know, look, I'm just going to do this. And, and I'm just telling you, it, it brings significant pain, significant suffering. And it sells short what, this, what is a beautiful gift that God has provided for his people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the way you've created us. Thank you that you have created us with bodies that are, that are physical, that respond to touch, that have been specifically designed to enjoy sexual experience. Thank you that, that you have given us this gift and that you have outlined very clearly how it is um, to be best enjoyed. Lord, many of us struggle to wait. Many of us struggle to, to reach your ideal and so we settle for something less. And it's not just a little less. It's not that we're, we're experiencing something really great, but just not the best. That actually this, this thing that has such potential for good and such potential for, for joy and satisfaction in our lives becomes something that is equally painful. That brings equal suffering to the, to the joy that it could. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would really move in our hearts. That this, this issue of sexuality is in one sense like every other issue in our lives. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of worship. What do we love the most? What do we want the most? And in that sense, Lord, I, I pray that our affections would just be stirred more and more for you. Our desire would be for your glory and our satisfaction. But Lord, in another sense, this issue of sexuality is significantly different in that you have wrapped up so much of our experience in it, so much of what it means to be human.
you have given us in it a, a picture of the gospel, a picture of, of your relationship to us. So Lord, I, I pray that we would not buy into the lie that it's no big deal. The relativizing of sexuality is, is maybe the, the biggest crime committed against it. To say it's casual, to say it's insignificant, to say it's just a physical experience is a lie. Lord, help us to see through that lie. We love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.